Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Jordan Pratt, on some major court battles he's involved with over religious liberty issues. Um, you know, all of these cases are cases in which, you know, religion was being treated less favorably than other, you know, secular activity. I don't think that that speaks well of our current, uh, current climate uh, in terms of uh, its protection for religious liberty. Jordan Pratt, next. Liberty Institute is planning on a busy spring as, over the next few months, their legal team will argue several important cases. They believe these cases are tremendous opportunities to bring about robust change for religious liberty. We'll talk about some of these cases today with attorney Jordan Pratt, senior counsel at First Liberty Institute. Jordan, first tell us about the mission and work of First Liberty Institute. Sure. Our mission is to vindicate the religious liberty rights of all Americans. We represent clients of all faiths. We represent them for free, free of charge. Um, and uh, we take on cases where, um, you know, we feel like we can make a difference. Uh, you know, our first freedom is uh, the, uh, the freedom to um, worship, uh, to believe, and to live out our faith. And uh, it's enshrined in the First Amendment. It's enshrined in uh, various federal statutes, state, state law as well. And uh, we uh, take on cases where, as I said, we can make a difference. How does First Liberty decide which cases to take up? I mean, obviously, you have uh, the choice of many. We do. Um, we often will receive requests for legal help from folks. Um, and not every case that we take is something that becomes public. Uh, we will often you know, offer uh, assistance to folks who, who need a little bit of assistance here and there. Um, but, you know, some of our cases... Uh, you know, might look small at the beginning and they turn into something very big. I think of the Coach Kennedy case as a great example. Um, we sent a letter on behalf of our client, Coach Kennedy, and we thought that, that was going to resolve it. And then seven years later, we were at the Supreme Court of the United States, um, you know, uh, setting a, a precedent setting win uh, that, uh, you know, overturned, um, you know, decades of, uh, of wrong establishment clause jurisprudence. So, um, you know, it's kind of hard to predict at the outset, but uh, we do answer the phone. Uh, we do uh, answer our email inbox. And, um, you know, uh, just according to the resources that we have available at the time, uh, we, uh, you know, offer, like, like I said, our assistance pro bono. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about and pray about, you know, each uh, matter that comes in the door about whether it's something that we can help with. And it's amazing to think about that, Coach Kennedy case, as you said, seven years uh, in the process, and basically what it vindicated his and other coaches' freedom to pray. Was it before a high school football game? It was was after the game. Okay. Um, And, you know, there were some factual questions in that case, but, I mean, essentially, you know, I I think the problem that a lot of, uh, you know, public and sometimes public school specifically uh, employees face is that they're told uh, that, you know, they're on the job 24 seven and they can't, um, you know, engage in any sort of religious uh, expression, even on their own time. And that's what happened in the coach Kennedy case. He was after the games, uh, his job was over. He was no longer, 
you know, acting as coach. He was in his personal capacity. And uh, we showed throughout the case that the school would allow its teachers and its coaches to engage in all sorts of, you know, personal errands, personal communications, um, you know, throughout the workday on their own personal time when they weren't, uh, you know, performing job duties. And, you know, basically what Coach Kennedy sought was the ability uh, to use that personal time for prayer. And the school didn't want him to do that. Uh, they didn't want to see, you know, students, they didn't want students to see him uh, engaging in personal prayer on his own personal time. And that's sort of, you know, a type of hostility to religion that I think we often encounter. Uh, it seems that it's uh, something that uh, has become uh, more and more common over the last few years. And I think that, you know, the Coach Kennedy case is a big win, um, you know, not just for coaches, but for teachers and even, you know, other, you know, government employees who use their personal time um, to, uh, to pray, um, you know, to read scripture or do anything else that might be perceived by others. Um, it tells government that you, you can't disfavor, you know, religion. If you're going to allow your employees to engage in, you know, personal um, activity, uh, during breaks in the workday, you can't say, well, you can do everything but pray. You can do everything but read scripture. Uh, that is offensive uh, to our First Amendment. Well, my guest today on His People is uh, Mr. Jordan Pratt. He is senior counsel at First Liberty Institute. And uh, Jordan, as we are now uh, fully in into 2023, I don't know if this is a fair question to ask. I want to ask you uh, about a couple of major cases that First Liberty is involved with. But from where you sit as senior counsel, what do you see as the most important um, religious liberty case that First Liberty is involved with this year? Well, they're, they're all important. Um, that's, that's why we take the cases. But, um, you know, certainly, um, you know, the Groff case that we have now pending before the U.S. Supreme Court, the court has chosen to hear the case. Uh, that's a case in which our employee, uh, who's a postal worker, uh, was let go uh, because, you know, his faith, um, you know, compels him to abide by the Sabbath, and for him, the Sabbath is on Sundays. And when the Postal Service transitioned to a model where they began partnering with Amazon to really increase their Sunday deliveries, uh, the Postal Service informed him that, look, we're, we're going to schedule you on Sundays. And, um, you know, an issue in the case is the meaning of uh, a statute called uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. Uh, there, there are provisions in Title VII that require employers including government employers, to reasonably accommodate the religious practices of their employees. And the question is, you know, what, what is the, the legal standard that courts are going to use uh, to determine whether, uh, you know, an accommodation is required? And, um, you know, we, we are optimistic and hopeful in this case uh, that the court is going to rule uh, for Mr. Groff and that it's going to do so in a way that's going to ensure that religious employees, both public and private, government and non-government, uh, enjoy the full protections of Title Seven. Now, you're involved in another uh, workplace, uh, if you will, religious discrimination case or where someone was uh, not able to uh, fulfill their duties because of religious convictions, that of Valerie Klusterman. Is that right? And Yes, Valerie Klusterman um, is a physician assistant. She was terminated from University of Michigan Health West is an affiliate of the Michigan Healthcare System, University of Michigan Healthcare System, because she sought a religious accommodation. Uh, she had gone through some training where she was told, you know, here uh, in the Michigan Healthcare System, you know, we offer, um, 
you know, uh, drugs and experimental surgeries for uh, folks with gender dysphoria. And, you know, she has both a, uh, a religious objection to assisting uh, in the provision of those services and also a medical objection. You know, she believes that, you know, she, she swore her Hippocratic oath before God, and she remains accountable, right? And she swore to do no harm. She believes that these procedures are harmful. And uh, a lot of the patients that she treated were, uh, were minors. Uh, you know, she was uh, involved in pediatrics in her practice. And in fact, that was a large portion of the clients that she saw. And she requests this accommodation, um, and she requested it, uh, you know, before HR. And uh, so I guess the, I think the acronym is DEI, the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion uh, Department. And they arranged a meeting, called her in. And during that meeting, she was attacked for her faith. Uh, she was called evil. Um, she was uh, called a liar. Um, she was told that she could not bring the Bible to work with her, literally or figuratively. Um, so obviously the meeting did not go well. Um, her employer was not interested in discussing an accommodation. And a month later, she was fired. And, um, you know, uh, I think <laughs> there's, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of legal issues involved in, in, in this case. Um, but you'll remember in the Masterpiece Cake Shop, case, uh, where uh, the Supreme Court said very clearly that it violates the First Amendment um, to denigrate someone for their faith and then to take official action against them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a First Amendment protection. So that's an issue. Title Seven is an issue, the statute that we just talked about that requires employers to accommodate their employees' religious practices. Um, and uh, there's you know, several other um, state laws uh, analogous state laws that are also at issue. And, uh, you know, that's a case where I think a real injustice was perpetrated. Um, you know, Ms. Klosterman could have kept quiet, could have chosen not to inform her employer about her religious beliefs, could have chosen not to seek an accommodation, and, you know, just kind of flown under the radar. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that that would have felt dishonest for her. Um, and, you know, working at an employer that prides itself in proclaiming how diverse it is, and how everyone should be their true selves and should not be afraid to express themselves, uh, she thought uh, that she would be welcome to express her religious self, to share her faith with her employer. Uh, and in this case, she was unable to you know, provide referrals for these sorts of uh, drugs and procedures. And instead of you know, a welcoming and tolerant environment, what she encountered uh, was a very hostile and intolerant one. And uh, that's that's one of the cases that we're working on now. That's uh, pending in a federal district court in Michigan. And she worked for Michigan Health, was it for 17 years before this happened? 17 years, I think that's about right. And before her, her mother and her grandmother had worked at the same um, in the same health care system before it had been acquired by the University of Michigan. And then you're also representing uh, somebody named Robin Strader. So kind of somewhat similar, she, she worked for CVS and... Uh, she was fired as well for not wanting to violate her religious convictions. Right. So Robin Strader, um, she works, I believe, as a nurse practitioner um, and had been employed by CVS. Uh, CVS has what's called a minute clinic, and uh, it's sort of a, a place where folks can go to get, you know, sort of a quick, um, you know, uh, look by, by a nurse uh, to take care of, you know, simple health care issues. Mm-hmm. 
and um, Robin Strader, fantastic at her job, um, you know, able to do um, all manner of different um, services. But the one thing that she wasn't able to do was to um, prescribe uh, hormonal birth control uh, because of her belief that it's abortifacient and, you know, because she's pro-life, uh, you know, um, as a matter of her faith, um, that that was not something that she could really participate in. And it was very rarely the case that someone would come to her and ask for that sort of prescription. Um, you know, sounds like most of the clients were finding uh, their hormonal birth control elsewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, she wasn't seeing many patients at all. Um, and, you know, CVS had accommodated her actually for years uh, without any incident. Mm. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden, CVS decided one day to revoke her accommodation, and it sounds like to revoke the accommodation of lots of nurses around the country who had this same accommodation in place, and they adopted a policy of non-accommodation. And again, this is after years and years of having accommodated these nurses without any problem, right? If, if someone needed um, you know, those, uh, those prescriptions, they would schedule another nurse. Um, or if a nurse wasn't available at that location, then they could refer that patient to a nearby CVS. And because there are so many CVSs and so many minute clinics, you know, there really wasn't any interruption to patient care at all. Um, so, you know, there's really no apparent reason why CVS uh, decided nationally to adopt a policy of non-accommodation. Um, but they've done so nonetheless. Uh, and we uh, contend that, that that's a violation of Title VII. And you filed a lawsuit on her behalf? That's right. And what is the status of it right now? Still pending, uh, just like our closed term in matter uh, and uh, in the process of litigation. And in which court is it in? Um, I believe it is in uh, Federal District Court in Texas. I'm not the attorney on the case. Okay. Um, so uh, don't quote me, but I believe that's where it is. So these kind of religious issues, is that an increasing problem or has this been a problem for many years? Well, I mean, a lot of our evidence is anecdotal, but yeah. uh, to the extent that, you know, we, we have, you know, numbers on sort of requests for legal help, it does seem to be increasing. Hmm. Uh, for whatever reason, we do seem to be receiving more requests. Um, and um, I'm not sure I can speak to exactly why that is, but um, it does seem indicative, I think, of sort of a cultural shift, if you will, um, you know, uh, I mean, we've, even if you look at the Supreme Court's most recent cases, right, on the free exercise clause, almost all of them have dealt with um, hostility toward or disfavored treatment of religion, hmm. right? Um, if you look at the Trinity Lutheran case, if you look at the Espinoza case, if you look at the Carson against Macon case, which was ours uh, in partnership with the Institute for Justice, if you look at the Coach Kennedy case, um, you know, all of these cases are cases in which, you know, religion was being treated less favorably than other, you know, secular activity. I don't think that that speaks well of our current uh, current climate uh, in terms of uh, its protection for religious liberty, um, well, or at least, you know, the, the uh, uh, degree to which that those protections are being honored. And I'll give you another example. Yeah. We currently are litigating right now um, the His Tabernacle case. Mm-hmm. That is a case out of New York. New York, shortly after it lost um, its gun carry case before the Supreme Court, uh, and it was required to issue permits on a shall-issue basis. New York rolled out uh, some new legislation, I think it was a week after that, that loss, and said, well, here are all the places that we're going to prohibit firearms. Um, and what was interesting is, for secular businesses, what New York said was, you know, we're going to prohibit firearms unless the owner 
allows them, right? So basically, it's almost like sort of a trespass thing, right? The owner gets to determine whether and to what extent, um, you know, firearm carry is allowed on their premises. Mm-hmm. But then they singled out houses of worship, and they categorically forbade the carry of firearms in places of worship, regardless whether, you know, the owner of the property, the, the religious leader wants to allow firearm carry. Doesn't matter. The state of New York says there's a categorical ban. You may not carry a firearm there. And what's so interesting is, you know, in addition to the obvious Second Amendment problem, um, there, there's, a, there's an even more basic First Amendment problem. And this goes back to that theme that I was just talking about, right, where the Supreme Court repeatedly, time and time and time again, has said, if the free exercise clause means anything, it means you can't disfavor religion. In fact, New York lost a case during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic um, in which it had singled out houses of worship for especially strict occupancy restrictions, right? Mm-hmm. You could go to the shopping mall, you could go to, you know, the barber shop, you could go to uh, the movie theater, um, and there were very capacious occupancy restrictions there. But these same areas, if you wanted to go to a house of worship, you were limited to 10 persons, or in some cases, 25 persons. Mm-hmm. And what the Supreme Court said there was, look, we've said this over and over and over again, you cannot single out religious places, religious people, religious activities for disfavored treatment, right? You have to treat them on par with how you treat comparable activity. So now looking at the gun case, you know, looking at it through that lens, what New York has said is, if you are a place of worship, let's say you disavow your faith, right? Now you're just a a club for the discussion of secular humanist philosophy. Keep the same trappings there. You still have motivational talk, you still have corporate singing, you still have a coffee hour. You can carry guns there. The only reason why is because you've disavowed your faith. It is conditioning the exercise of one constitutional freedom on the relinquishment of another. And this case is that, it's before the U.S. Supreme Court right now? No, this case um, is before the Second Circuit. So we uh, got a preliminary injunction against the law, not only on Second Amendment grounds, but also on First Amendment grounds. Uh, and the state of New York has now appealed that to the Second Circuit. Um, and then, of course, the next level of review after the Second Circuit is the Supreme Court. Um, and I certainly think that if the Second Circuit were to do anything other than affirm the preliminary injunction, um, I, I got to believe the Supreme Court would be interested in a case like this, um, because uh, a lot of its docket on religious liberty has simply been reminding government again and again and again that it cannot target uh, religion for disfavored treatment. Um, and that's what we have here. And a couple of the details in that case are just interesting that the pastor of his tabernacle family church had a concealed carry permit. He legally carried a firearm. And in fact, the church had had some threats, which would even give a further rise for wanting to be uh, to protect themselves. Isn't that right? Well, yes. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think the most interesting factual tidbit of the case is Pastor Spencer himself uh, had been uh, threatened by uh, a, a, a person with a firearm uh, who actually discharged the firearm outside the pastor's house. Pastor mm. calls 911, right? Who responds? It's the New York State Police. 
Mind you, the head of the New York State Police is the defendant in our suit. Hmm. That's the person who ultimately is charged with enforcing the statute, right? It falls to the New York State Police. In fact, the head of the New York State Police was next to the governor when she rolled out all this legislation and said, if you violate, you know, uh, these new restrictions, we will arrest you and you will go to prison, right, at the press conference. So anyways, these officers who respond, um, you know, they deal with the man with the gun. Um, I think it was sort of a mental health issue type thing. Mm -hmm. And then they asked Pastor Spencer, do you have a firearm? I said, yes. And they said, that's a good idea. You should keep one. <laughs> okay. okay. So we have the, the officers mm -hmm. answer to the defendant in our suit who have specifically told our client, yeah, we think that you should have some protection. You have a, you have a need, right? And, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court in the Kerry case has already said that the right to keep and bear arms doesn't depend on the, on the showing of some sort of special need for self-defense, right? Because New York used to require, you know, in order to get a permit, they required that showing. And, by the way, Pastor Spencer got his permit under that regime where New York was very stringent and stingy in the issuing, uh, issuing of licenses. Um, but anyway, so, you know, we have, you know, the officers, the ones, you know, who actually understand how everything works on the ground, um, who have told our client, you know, yes, you should be carrying a firearm, right? And all of these threats, by the way, are connected to the church. You know, the church is very large. Um, it televises its services. They get sort of, you know, threatening mail all the time. Um, they've had uh, folks who, um, you know, someone who was not a member of the church um, who had a, a weapon during the service, I think it was a knife, I think it was the same gentleman, actually, who was hmm. sort of shouting threats at the pastor during the service. Um, and the idea that New York would say, well, look, we understand that as a place of worship, you're vulnerable to violence. Um, so we're just going to categorically disarm you, unlike all of the other secular businesses, which we allow to protect themselves. But we're not going to allow the church to protect itself. We're not going to allow the synagogue to protect itself. Um, that's, that's just... Like I said, it's not just a Second Amendment problem. It's a, it's a giant, um, you know, First Amendment problem. Well, Jordan, I know I have to let you go here in just a moment. Uh, there's one other large category of cases that uh, First Liberty's been involved with. I don't know if you're involved personally in these, but I, I'm hoping you can speak to that of vindicating service members who were punished for their faith who, because of religious objections, I think what the major issue is is, is declining the vaccination. That's right. We represent a class of Navy service, service members uh, who asked for an accommodation, a religious accommodation for the vaccine, and uh, have had adverse actions taken against them simply because they asked uh, for an accommodation. Yeah, that I'm case sorry. right now is, is pending before the Fifth Circuit. The, the district court granted a class-wide preliminary injunction, uh, which prevents the Navy from taking you know, uh, adverse actions against uh, servicemen and servicewomen who, who've sought, you know, a religious uh, accommodation of the vaccine mandate. And the Fifth Circuit uh, is now, review, uh, you know, uh, tasked with reviewing the, uh, the class-wide injunction. Sorry, the oral go. argument occurred uh, last week. Oh. We expect a ruling from the court, uh, you know, it could be tomorrow, it could be six months from now, but uh, the court will be ready to rule. Obviously, people can keep up with these, these and other cases at your website. Is it firstliberty.org? That's right. And how ultimately would you like, I mean, people listening to this, there's not much we can do except pray. How would you, as an attorney there, like people who hear about these cases to pray for you and for the other attorneys there at uh, First Liberty? Well, I think, you know, praying for wisdom, um, you know, we, we want to make sure that we take the right cases. Um, you know, we're, we, we have uh, 
some resources that, to allocate, and we want to allocate them well. Um, I think uh, just praying, um, you know, for um, our, our judges uh, who, you know, anyone who wears the robe uh, swears an oath um, to, uh, you know, to do justice without respect to persons. They swear an oath to the law. And, um, you know, just uh, for clear thinking for our judges, uh, the, you know, um, the ability to see what the right thing is and to do the right thing, uh, even if there's political pressure, right? Some of our cases, some of our cases, you know, we have, we have plenty of, of, of cases that, you know, don't, I, I think, have a lot of political valence, mm-hmm. um, you know, that are, are pretty non-controversial. But then others, um, you know, you know, you'll see media on, you know, on both sides, right? And it seems to be a political sort of thing. You know, the job of a judge is not to be political. The job of a judge is, is to rule according to law. And I think praying for, for judges who, um, you know, are unafraid to, um, to vindicate their oath and uh, to, to hear our arguments uh, in, a, in a fair-minded way. Um, I think, you know, praying for our, um, our fundraising operation, uh, you know, that, that's, that's always important. Uh, we have, you know, our clients, they never pay a dime, right? Um, and uh, we are able to do our work because we have some folks who support our ministry financially. And, uh, you know, it's part of our mission. Uh, we will never charge our clients. Um, so, you know, prayer for that. And, uh, you know, I think ultimately just prayer for the state of our country, um, that the message will get out, that religious freedom is our first freedom, and that it needs to be respected. I think, you know, ultimately we're really praying for our culture. We're praying for the hearts and minds of people. I think our listeners, uh, listeners to Pilgrim Radio, are always interested when they hear uh, inter- interviews, discussions with people in various professions, occupations. How did the Lord lead you? How did God lead you into the law? Well, um, it was definitely a personal journey. Um, I think, you know, initially in high school, I was looking at uh, military service, something that, um, you know, I felt like I might be called to do. Uh, I explored that option. I explored the, the military academies and prayed about it and just felt like that wasn't right for me. Um, and then I thought that law enforcement was probably, uh, you know, where I was headed. And it was, you know, when I took a few pre-law classes that, you know, I just had a, a spark sort of go off. Uh, something clicked. And, um, you know, just the way that I'm wired, I kind of, I saw how the practice of law uh, would sort of bring together different things that God had given me, um, you know, both talent-wise and interest-wise. And uh, it was sort of a discernment process that I think, you know, culminated in the last year of college uh, when I decided to sit with the LSAT. But it was not a plan that I always had. My parents aren't lawyers. Um, This is just something that um, I sort of was led into slowly, uh, you know, as I saw some doors close and others open. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Attorney Jordan Pratt, Senior Counsel at First Liberty Institute. Go to firstliberty.org. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Tori Peterson on the many ways God has worked in her life. I was conceived out of abuse. And I think, you know, in that situation, there are people who would say, you know, you can just get an abortion. You don't have to have this baby, but my mom generously gave me life. And I'm so grateful she did because as hard as life has been at times, I'm really thankful that I get to live, that I get to have life. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.